You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Reviewing Charles Dickens' performance in New York City on New Year's Eve, 1867, Mark Twain wrote, He is a bad reader. He does not cut the syllables cleanly and therefore many of them fell dead before they reached our part of the house. Twain added, I say our because I am proud to observe that there was a beautiful young lady with me. The young lady in question was Olivia Langdon. The Dickens reading was their first date, chaperoned of course, and Sam Clemens would go forth to press his case in an avalanche of love letters, as well as frequent visits to the Langdon family home in Elmira, New York. During the Thanksgiving holiday, Livy Langdon surrendered at last, after numerous rejections, to Sam Clemens's proposal of marriage. The next day he resumed his American Vandal lecture tour. While she, alone, contemplated the likelihood it would be her last holiday season in Elmira, the only home she had ever known. In letters to her fiancé, she expressed her fears candidly, and with an elegance Sam appreciated, even envied. He fixated on one phrase in particular, to think of having my family grow used to my being absent, so at last they would cease to miss me. It inspired him to make a portentous promise. I just don't wonder that it makes you sad to think of leaving such a home, Livy. And such household gods, for there is no other home in all the world like it, no household gods so lovable as yours anywhere. And I shall feel like a heartless highway robber when I take you away from there. You shall visit them, Livy, and so often that they cannot well realize that you are absent. You shall never know the chill that comes upon me sometimes when I feel that long absence has made me a stranger in my own home. A dull, aching consciousness that long exile has lost to me that haven of rest. That pillow of weariness, that refuge from care and trouble and pain. That type and symbol of heaven. Home. And then, away down in my heart of hearts, I yearn for the days that are gone and the phantoms of the olden time, for the faces that are vanished, for the forms I loved to see, for the voices that were music to my ear, for the restless feet that have gone out into the darkness to return no more forever. But you shall not know this great blank, this awful vacancy, this something missed, something lost, which is felt but cannot be described, this solemn, mysterious desolation. No. I, with my experience, should dread to think of your old home growing strange to you.
33-year-old Sam Clemens, portrayed here by Will Holbrook, put this promise to paper in the wee hours of Christmas Eve morning in a central Michigan boarding house. Despite his fatigue, infatuation, and likely inebriation, he honored it, rather spectacularly, with an annual months-long pilgrimage to Elmira, during which Livy was spared the pain of long exile. And, in an octagonal study built for him at Quarry Farm, looking down upon the town of Elmira, like the Grinch over Whoville, Mark Twain wrote Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Life on the Mississippi, and many other travel books, plays, stories, essays, and at least one pornographic farce. Securing with these works what he would himself come to recognize as an immortality so assured that he could schedule the publication of his autobiography for a hundred years in the future, and it would still be a bestseller. That Elmira is the primary site of Twain's literary productivity has been, frankly, an inconvenient fact for many scholars, particularly those eager to cast him as a purveyor of manifest destiny, the lost cause, classical liberalism, or other jingoist fantasies. Van Wyck Brooks, for instance, dismisses Elmira as a stagnant freshwater aristocracy without the moral freedom and intellectual culture of New England. His contemporary, Bernard DeVoto, went so far as to say that when Sam Clemens married into the Langdon family, he betrayed his deepest self. The omission of Elmira from literary criticism between the world wars was driven in part by misogyny. The city was an unmistakable enclave of first-wave feminism, and probably exactly because of this history, early critics reduced Olivia Langdon Clemens to a pious bourgeois nag. Devoto openly mourns for an American Shakespeare who might have been, if only Mark Twain had chosen a different wife. This remained the conventional wisdom for half a century. Laura Scandera Trombley sums it up as follows, from a lecture at the Elmira College Center for Mark Twain Studies in 1993. Before coming to Elmira, I never had any intention of becoming involved in Twain Studies. However, by way of some discovered letters Twain wrote to his daughters, my interest was piqued. I remember visiting the man who had found these 100 letters and sitting down to look through them. For hours I read letter after letter that Twain had written to his daughters and was astonished by the obvious warmth and sincerity and by his witty and touching anecdotes. At the time, I questioned why I didn't know who Twain's daughters were, why I didn't know his, who his wife was, or more importantly, why I was unaware that he had even engaged in these kinds of relationships. When I arrived in Elmira, I had tentatively decided that I would write my dissertation on Twain and the professional women with whom he associated. Yet day after day, as I sat here at the farm reading biographies, Payne, Brooks, Devoto, Emerson, Kaplan, and Hill, I still wondered where these family women were hiding. Where were Susan Crane and Jane Lampton Clements? I asked why the road leading to Quarry Farm is named Water Cure. Who's Rachel Gleason? What, what, what constituted Olivia's background? My work ever since has been an attempt to answer these questions, both for myself and for those interested in Twain. In a trio of monographs published in the mid-90s, Skandera Trombley, Susan K. Harris, and Shelley Fisher-Fishkin rescued Livy and many of the other women in her family from the patriarchal archetypes of Brooks and Devoto. They inaugurated a rich and still thriving vein of Twain studies. But Elmira remains, if not invisible, certainly still subordinate to Hannibal, Hartford, and several of Twain's western haunts. 
As the current resident scholar at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, I can testify that most people, even among C-19 scholars, know little about the place where Twain was married and buried. Nor did I, before I moved here five years ago. My name is Matt Siebel. I'm Assistant Professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, and over the next half hour, I'm going to survey the rich political history of the small city where Twain made most of his enduring art. The Marxist critic and activist, Max Eastman, another Elmira native, marveled at the misrepresentation of his community in the first wave of Twain scholarship. So far as concerns social and political attitudes, Eastman argues, the Langdons were far more radical than Mark Twain was when he met them. While Van Wyck Brooks claimed that Livy imposed upon her husband a vast and intricate system of privilege and convention, Eastman insists Olivia's gospel was one of self-reliant revolt against forms and conventions. If there was an aristocracy in Elmira, Eastman writes, it was an aristocracy which, deprived of titles and not yet debauched by industrial profits, rested upon intellectual culture and genuine moral elevation. This aristocracy was hospitable to intellect and talent no matter where they arose. In proportion, the number of highly developed, sensitive, progressive, and thinking minds in that upstate town was larger than in any metropolis. This final statement is all the more outrageous when one considers the source. When Max and his sister, Crystal Eastman, left Elmira, they moved to Greenwich Village, where he founded the Men's League for Women's Suffrage, and she co-founded the American Civil Liberties Union. He became editor of the masses until it was shuttered during the first Red Scare, after which, together, they launched The Liberator, the leading socialist publication of its era. Max was a defendant in the most publicized sedition trial of World War I, after which he moved to the Soviet Union to study with Leon Trotsky. Yet by his calculation, Elmira was the most progressive place he ever lived, and Mark Twain remained always, as he put it, the patron saint of the only faith to which I adhere. Eight years after she organized the first feminist congress, Crystal Eastman wrote of her youth in Elmira, At fifteen, I was as wise in feminism as I am now. The little city where we lived was, perhaps, unusual. Max argued that they had grown up at the exact center of one of the most interesting clusters of people and ideas that American churchdom ever produced or found room to contain. They happened to be, these are still Eastman's words, the same people and ideas that Mark Twain had absorbed into himself by marriage 25 years earlier. The park church that Max and Crystal grew up in is, both literally and figuratively, at the center of Elmira. It epitomizes what now seems an unusual confluence of radical politics and rapacious capitalism. The park church's sheer size and Byzantine architectural flourishes make it an anachronism in downtown. Twain called it a queer-looking thing, but very beautiful. It dwarfs the hockey arena that sits across the street. Try to imagine a cathedral that's three-quarters the size of Notre Dame, but plopped down in the middle of a city of 30,000. The chapel, with its 360-degree balcony, was built to hold 1,500 people, 
but takes up less than a third of the park church's total square footage. The structure stretches backward from the pulpit into banquet halls, school rooms, nurseries, residences, galleries, libraries, and a billiard parlor. Like Max Eastman, a self-described church mouse, I'm exploring the secluded nooks of this massive building, standing on bare rafters in the belfry above the chapel. Max's mother, Annis Ford Eastman, was the first woman ordained in the state of New York. She was sponsored by Thomas K. Beecher, the younger brother of Henry Ward Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Beecher installed Eastman as his protege and presumed successor at Park Church. Her son remembers that his mother liked to read the risque calamus poems from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass to Julia Beecher, her mentor's wife, and to sing the lyrics of Onward Christian Soldier to the tune of There'll Be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight. Crystal remembers her mother as a model for collective action, creating domestic co-ops and reorganizing services to pr prioritize collaboration and consensus building. The Eastman children were bound to become suffragettes and socialists. Crystal organized her first boycott at 13. She and her friends would not swim anywhere they were compelled to wear bathing suits with skirts and sleeves. Before it became the largest and most progressive church in the region, the original wood frame church on this site was financed by a group of 40 former Presbyterians who had been expelled from what was at the time the largest congregation in town for openly supporting the abolition of slavery. Their de facto leader was Livy's father, Jervis Langdon, who was in the process of building his business empire, hoovering up mines, processing plants, riverboats, and railroads on the way to a near monopoly of the coal trade between Buffalo and the East Coast. The expansion of the church would parallel the growth of his fortune. By 1854, Langdon could afford to begin recruiting the most radical member of the most famous family of American theologians. Jervis Langdon was not an extroverted nor particularly eloquent man, but according to Beecher, those who passed through his home, including Frederick Douglass, reported his repetition of a simple promise. The family horse and purse are at the service of fugitives from slavery. This piqued Beecher's interest, but he laid out terms which he thought too eccentric for even this renegade congregation. They were accepted without further negotiation. Over the next decade, the unorthodox, non-denominational, and inclusive congregation grew so large it could only fit in the Elmira Opera House. Envious regional reverends condemned Beecher as more minstrel than minister. Mark Twain joked that these clergymen, of whom I have never heard before, crushed the famous Beecher and reduced his audiences from 1500 to 1475. Jervis Langdon moved more quietly and materially to Beecher's defense, buying a majority position in the incorporated opera house and then contracting with a Syracuse firm to build a church as big as an opera house. It cost the contemporary equivalent of $2.5 million. Langdon did not live to see it completed, but in his eulogy, Beecher made an audacious claim. Envy's self was silenced at the sight of Jervis Langdon's prosperity. So many people were sharing in it. Sam Clemens was not, like the rest of the family, a fixture of Park Church's religious services. But America's most recognizable infidel could frequently be found playing pool and drinking beer with Beecher, both in the Park Church 
itself and at Claproth's Tavern down the street, where their mugs sat side by side behind the bar. Thomas K. Beecher was one of the best men I have ever known, Twain wrote in his autobiography. He was a keen intellect, and he was brilliant in conversation, always interesting, except when the topic was theology. Twain also recalls Beecher making a rather extraordinary confession. He did not believe in God until he came to Elmira. Thomas K. Beecher was positioned as well as anybody to appreciate the antebellum New England culture which Van Wyck Brooks romanticizes. So why did the most progressive preacher of Gilded Age America find his calling in a place which historians so often dismiss as provincial, if they mention it at all? At least part of the reason is that the abolitionists of upstate New York had a more militant reputation than their Bostonian peers. The southern fire-eater Preston Brooks, who famously assaulted Charles Sumner on the floor of the U.S. Senate, described the Finger Lakes region as enemy territory, even long before the Civil War. I could not pass through without running the gauntlet of mobs and assassins, prisons and penitentiaries, bailiffs and constables. I could never get to Canada, he wrote. This was probably a bit sensational, but if the actions of Elmira abolitionists are representative, New Yorkers could not be trusted to respect slave law. In August of 1853, exactly one year before Thomas K. Beecher was officially offered his ministry, a southern family traveling through the region insisted that the Elmira police arrest a 20-year-old woman named Judah Barber, who they accused of fleeing enslavement in Missouri. Under the Fugitive Slave Act, passed three years earlier, Northern authorities were required to detain any black person accused of being a slave, and levy heavy fines upon those who aided and abetted their escape. The act was designed to criminalize the Underground Railroad, putting free blacks at risk, even above the Mason-Dixon line, and giving slaveholders a path to restitution through the courts. Judah Barber did not deny that she was a slave according to the law, nor that she had deceived the family who enslaved her to seek her liberty. Thus, she placed the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act squarely and unambiguously in the hands of the Chemung County Court and Judge Ariel Thurston. According to reports from her arraignment, Barbara was uncommonly beautiful. Her appearance, one editor wrote, indicates anything but abuse. She testified to the contrary. Merely by allowing Barbara to speak on her own behalf, Judge Thurston was already in violation of the law, and despite the disincentives to associate with her, Barbara faced the court flanked by powerful friends. Jervis Langdon petitioned for her release, and was represented by two partners from Elmira's most prestigious law firm. Lead counsel was James L. Woods, a future nominee to the New York Supreme Court. He was assisted by Alexander Divin, who was, along with Langdon, a stakeholder in numerous regional railroads, including a vice president for the infamous Erie. Divin moonlighted as a corporate lobbyist, and as such was a rising star in Albany. He helped organize the Republican Party in the southern tier of New York, was elected to the state Senate, and then in the Republican wave of 1860 to the U.S. House of Representatives.
as one might expect from somebody who thrived in New York's famously corrupt political machine, Divin's value to Judah Barber's case had nothing to do with his legal expertise. That's what Woods were for. Divin was there to remind Judge Thurston who his friends were. It was Divin who had recruited Ariel Thurston to join the bar in Elmira two decades earlier, thereafter guiding his career to the bench he now occupied. A contemporary described Judge Thurston as a Republican-leaning independent who was not the favorite of machine politicians. He may have needed a little extra hand-holding from his old friend. They attended the same church and sat together on the boards of local corporations and charitable organizations, sometimes joined by Judge Thurston's sister, the founder of Miss Clarissa's Seminary for Young Ladies. Jervis Langdon's adopted daughter, Susan, had graduated from the seminary just three months earlier. The proud father was, naturally, one of the school's most generous benefactors. Mark Twain would later express admiration for the restraint his father-in-law often showed in exercising the power which came with his millions. But make no mistake, Langdon was eminently capable of bending local politics to his will. In an evening hearing on August 10, 1853, Judge Thurston declared Judah Barber free in open defiance of the Fugitive Slave Act. Was it an inspiring act of civil disobedience? the kind which renewed Thomas K. Beecher's faith? Or was it an indictment of the constitutional framework upon which so much American mythology rests? Or is it somehow both? Judah Barber escaped slavery because a quartet of well-intentioned local power brokers united in opposition to an inhumane law, potentially risking their own property and position in the process. But Barber's case also exemplifies how the U.S. legal system is routinely circumvented by cartels of wealthy white men who flagrantly flout the letter of the law in favor of an opaque barter system involving rubber stamps, railroad shares, college endowments, commuted sentences, land grants, and mysteriously misplaced paperwork. They were not as conspicuous, certainly, as Jervis Langdon or Alexander Divin, but the ring of co-conspirators aligned behind Judah Barber also included two African-American men. When Judge Thurston made his ruling, they rose and rapidly escorted her from the courtroom. Witnessing this choreography, the correspondent from the Elmira Gazette observed that her choice of company assured that the Missouri slaveholders and their proxies would enjoy no further opportunity to apprehend Barber, or appeal the case to a more friendly court. The reporter recognized the men at her side as Sandy Brandt and John W. Jones. One was a baggage handler for the Canandaigua and Elmira Railroad. The other was Sexton at the nearby First Baptist Church. Both were conductors on the Underground Railroad. Jones personally participated in the escapes of more than 800 enslaved persons between 1850 and 1861. He first came to Elmira as a fugitive himself and spent portions of the next three years residing for intervals in the Langdon Homes, Miss Clarissa's Seminary, and for many months in the woods around Rorick's Glen to the west of the city. He was supplied there by Elmira's station masters, particularly Olivia Lewis Langdon, who was pregnant with her and Jervis's first biological child, and presumably above suspicion. 
the daughter she carried to and from Rorick's Glen during the summer of 1845, would take her mother's name, but be more affectionately known to history as Livy Clemens, wife of Mark Twain. Standing beside Samuel Clemens's headstone at Woodlawn Cemetery in Elmira, looking north, I can see underneath the enormous trees which give the graveyard its name, the final resting place of Thomas K. Beecher. To the west, one can see Langdon, Divin, and near the peak of the hilltop, John W. Jones. Jones became sexton here upon Woodlawn's founding in 1859, and as such, oversaw the burial of many of Elmira's abolitionists. More famously, he buried 2,973 Confederate prisoners of war, among them the son of the overseer on the Virginia plantation from which he had escaped in 1844. The Union Army paid him $2.50 for every burial, and with this money he built a farmhouse, now the John W. Jones Museum, also visible from Clemens's grave. Among the stories the museum promotes are accounts of Southern families who, after the Civil War, came to retrieve their dead and were awestruck by the remarkable burial ground Jones had created and the care he put into cataloging possessions and identifying graves. Few families relocated their deceased soldiers, and thus Woodlawn was de designated a national cemetery in 1874. Like any American myth, there is a kernel of truth in the characterization of Jones as an unlikely angel of mercy, honoring the remains of those who fought for the right to enslave him. But the way I see it, the very architecture of Jones's house suggests he was holding on to at least a little spite. It's built in a revival style synonymous with southern plantations. With the proceeds from Confederate deaths, Jones built a plantation of his own. And from his wide front porch, he could gaze out through Tuscan columns upon perfect rows of Confederate graves receding into the distance. Jones's work as Sexton also earned him the privilege of being buried on the hilltop amidst Union officers, railroad barons, and Republican congressmen symbolically peering down at a sea of fallen graycoats. After more than a century, the arrangement of these resting places, which Jones oversaw, still conveys as it was designed to, the superior wealth and power of the families buried on the hill. The National Park Service's Network to Freedom map, memorializing participation in the Underground Railroad, sits at the entrance to the hilltop section, surrounded by gilded age grandeur, 10 and 12 foot monuments, mausoleums, iron gates, and romantic statuary are common to the family plots here. It is starkly apparent that the cynical brilliance of the Underground Railroad lay in appropriating the appetites of capitalists to a carefully prescribed egalitarian cause, and, as such, creating unusual alliances between the most powerful and the most precarious, alliances which were strengthened by the mutual bonds of conspiracy. John W. Jones was able to conduct so many fugitives to safety in Elmira, Rochester, and across the Canadian border, expressly because his patrons increasingly controlled the region's actual railroads. 
Alexander Divin was, according to the Elmira Gazette, the railroad king of America. While this may have been a bit of local hyperbole, Divin was president, director, trustee, or legal counsel for at least half a dozen lines, often sharing the boardroom with other local station masters, including Jervis Langdon and Simeon Benjamin. All three were officers, for instance, of the Canandaigua and Elmira Railroad. These early robber barons were, in contemporary parlance, vertically integrating. They sought control of the distribution networks for their commodities, primarily coal and lumber, and by doing so reduced their own costs and gained leverage over their competitors, who were forced either to accept price gouging or resort to alternate and less efficient forms of transportation. The octopus-like amalgamation pursued by the Elmira cartel was obvious to investors on Wall Street and appropriators in Washington. What was less obvious, at least at the time, was that by creating routes which connected Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse with Philadelphia, Harrisburg, and Pittsburgh, cartel trains were also connecting the Mason-Dixon line to the Canadian border. Locomotives owned by Langdon and Benjamin were outfitted with baggage cars designed to carry stowaways, an awkward example of how durable methods of human trafficking were innovated for the purpose of eluding fugitive slave law. Jones, Brandt, and the other conductors working out of Elmira were hired on as baggage handlers, and in this capacity were able to travel to and from southern Pennsylvania without scrutiny. Philanthrocapitalism is the term coined in the 21st century to describe fraught relationships between oligopolists, the charities they found, and activist organizations they endow. But while the term is new, philanthrocapitalism has a long history in the United States. Its proponents can reasonably argue that in Elmira, industrialists used their exorbitant gains from resource extraction to not only create abundant wage labor, but invest in social justice and civil rights projects. It wasn't just the Underground Railroad. After the Civil War, the Langdons and their wealthy, socially progressive friends founded the Elmira Free Academy, a tuition-free, co-educational, and fully integrated primary school. The Elmira Industrial School, a boarding house and trade school run by women for women, which provided a refuge from domestic violence and skills to increase financial independence and Elmira College, the first higher education institution in the United States to grant degrees to women, the alma mater of Libby Clemens, and now the home of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Elmira would seem to be a textbook example of what Deidre McClowski calls the bourgeois deal. A few capitalists became fantastically rich, but the entire community benefited. Overall living standards improved by degrees which likely would not have been possible without that boundless ambition, or let's just call it greed. The social cost of the bourgeois deal is the erosion of the rule of law, which does not always appear like something worth preserving. Henry David Thoreau no doubt would have applauded Jervis Langdon's intervention on Judah Barber's behalf. In Civil Disobedience, he wrote, Law never made men more just, and by means of their respect for it, the well-disposed are daily made the agents of injustice. But how durable is a society which accepts the precedent that a magnanimous magnate may choose which laws are enforced and upon whom?
A famously dark phase in Twain's writings begins with the death of Livy Clemens in 1904. Having already lost two children and now his much younger wife, 70-year-old Sam Clemens, his own health failing, found it increasingly hard to return to the sights of his greatest domestic joys. When his youngest daughter Jean also died during a seizure in the house they shared, Sam could not even bring himself to travel with her casket to Woodlawn. He could not bear what he called the force of association and tried to persuade his only remaining daughter, Clara, to steer clear of Elmira as well, warning her that if she did go, she must stay at a house with no associations. The fervor with which Clemens avoids Elmira in these final years shows how powerful a claim it had made upon him. He wanted to preserve his fond memories of its people and landmarks, many of which he describes in his autobiography, rather than have them tinged with heartbreak and loss. Hal Holbrook, who has been performing as Twain for 65 years, brings to life the author's testimony to how individuals are shaped by their environments from Twain's dialogue, What is Man?, published in 1906. From the cradle to the grave, during all his waking hours, the human being is under training. It is his human environment which influences his mind. He is a chameleon, by the law of nature, he takes the color of his place of, of resort. The influences about him create his preferences, his aversions, his politics, his tastes, his morals, his religion. He creates none of these things by himself. He thinks he does, but that is because he has not examined the matter. A man is never anything but what his outside influences have made him. They train him downwards, or they train him upwards, but they train him. They work upon him all the time. It is in his chameleonship that his greatest good fortune lies. He has only to change his habitat, his associations. But the impulse to do it must come from the outside. He cannot originate it himself. Sometimes a very small and Accidental thing can furnish him the initiatory impulse and start him on a new road with a new ideal. The chance remark of a sweetheart may water a seed that shall sprout and bloom and flourish and end in producing a surprising fruitage. 
The history of man is full of such accidents. And the result for that man can be an entire change of his way of life. Mark Twain's articulation of the futility of individual striving in the face of his material conditions exemplifies the latent Marxism which critics like Eastman, Forrest Robinson, and Catherine Karlstrom have exposed in Twain's work. Though the specific language of this passage Twain borrows more directly from Henry Carey, who Marx called the only American economist of importance. Was there any place of resort which trained the cosmopolitan and chameleon Twain more than Elmira? Any chance remark from a sweetheart which yielded more surprising fruitage than the one Livy had made in 1868? Many critics have observed that Twain's professional decision-making was driven by his desire to secure for Livy and his daughters the comforts to which they had become accustomed. Less frequently, is it pointed out that the decisions he made in their name yielded the works which the very same critics have since used to canonize Mark Twain, most of which were written in the octagonal study at Quarry Farm. His daily interlocutors during these peak times in his literary productivity were not Mississippi riverboat pilots, Nevada panhandlers, San Francisco bohemians, or Hartford intelligentsia, but a renegade Congregationalist minister, women's rights advocates, and upwardly mobile African Americans. The first story Mark Twain ever published in the prestigious Atlantic Monthly was set on the porch at Quarry Farm as Marianne Cord, the cook who lived in the cottage on the property, recounted being forcibly separated from her three-year-old son during a slave auction and then miraculously reunited with him during Sherman's march. Her son, Henry Washington, became a Union soldier and then, after the Civil War, purchased a barbershop in Elmira where he could brag of cutting Mark Twain's celebrated hair, were that something a barber wished to publicize. He and his mother are both married at Woodlawn Cemetery, though not on the hill. By Twain's own admission, their story was the first he ever published which had no humor in it. Via such associations, his conception of his own artistic potential was changing. Writing in his autobiography on the occasion of his 36th wedding anniversary, Twain seemed to ratify Max Eastman's claim that he had absorbed into himself by marriage Livy's gospel of revolt. Her prodigal affection broke upon me as the summer waves upon the Gibraltar, wrought into one individual, so to speak, by marriage, her disposition and character and mine. It was a strange combination. The Mark Twain who came to Elmira in 1868 had argued across a series of sardonic travel letters, stand-up routines, and burlesque sketches that mankind in general, and Americans in particular, were natural hypocrites, charlatans, and misers, and that those who dared to believe otherwise were doomed to continual poverty and disappointment. He believed that his countrymen had been fully converted to the revised catechism. Get money, get it quickly, get it in abundance, get it in prodigious abundance, dishonestly if you can, honestly only if you must. But as Twain would later put it, 
Jervis Langdon was a man whose character and nature were made up exclusively of excellencies, who could easily have gone to Wall Street to become a Jay Gould and slaughter the innocents, but instead endowed schools for girls, harbored fugitive slaves, and emboldened both his children and the people in his employ to test their most far-fetched idealisms on his dime. Sam Clemens shared in the Langdon generosity. Jervis bought him his first home, co-signed his purchase of the Buffalo Express, and advised him during the negotiation of his second book contract. Of course, as befits a bourgeois deal, in the pages of the newspaper Langdon helped him buy, Mark Twain vociferously defended the Langdon Coal Company against accusations that it was a monopoly. Langdon's abolitionist co-conspirator and sometimes business partner, Alexander Divin, was arrested for his role in the Erie Railroad Wars, which provided much of the inspiration for Twain's darkly satirical first novel, The Gilded Age. Medivin also resigned his congressional seat in 1861 to enlist in the Union Army, and as his last act had sponsored a bill aimed at integrating the armed forces, laying groundwork for black soldiers like Henry Washington to claim pensions and, after the war, start their own businesses. Van Wyck Brooks dismissed Elmira as part of an angular sectarianism of raw money. Were it so, it would have been easily assimilated into the account of American capitalism, which young Sam Clemens had based upon his observation of the gold rush, the cotton trade, and the Grant administration. To the contrary, the practices of Elmira's capitalist class were complex, unpredictable, and therefore all the more potentially insidious. Twain's assessment of the American political economy grew far more rigorous and dialectical during the decades he summered at Quarry Farm, and this was undeniably good for his art. The confluence of political progressivism and philanthrocapitalism in Elmira confused Mark Twain, and out of this confusion emerged his Quarry Farm style, a series of narratives for and about children, which nonetheless reliably scandalize adults. They are filled with girls who are not innocent, cynics who are not hopeless, free-thinking slaves and scientific magicians, authoritarianism in the name of democracy, a prince who fantasizes about pauperism, and an irrepressible hero who decides to go to hell. In these novels, Twain returns repeatedly to the most mythic eras of American and British history, but does so not to prey upon nostalgia, but to annihilate it to suffocate our romantic idols under grotesque piles of corpses. So many corpses. The octagonal study where Twain wrote now sits on the campus at Elmira College. It is, as Twain put it, the quietest of all quiet places, and makes a fine recording studio. A hundred and fifteen years to the day after Sam and Libby's first date, their grandnephew, another Jervis Langdon, bequeathed the Quarry Farm property to Elmira College, founding the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Perhaps he remembered something of Annis Ford Eastman's eulogy for Mark Twain, in which she refused to try to estimate his worth to the world, but predicted 
There will be many a voice more competent than mine to set forth the lessons of his life. Jervis Langdon Jr. insisted that his gift be dedicated expressly to the task which Eastman deferred, supporting scholarship on Mark Twain's life, work, legacy, and circle, which he defined with admirable breadth, including many literary and cultural figures of the 19th century. In pursuit of this vision, the Center for Mark Twain Studies offers 10 fellowships every year. Fellows spend two to four weeks as exclusive residents in the main house at Quarry Farm, supported by a comprehensive research library and a generous stipend. For more details, application instructions, and information about our many other projects and events, please visit marktwainstudies.org. This episode has been written and narrated by Matt Siebel with production help from Joe Lamack, the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, and C-19 producers Ashley Ratner and Doug Guerra. Extra special thanks to Hal Holbrook and his son, Will Holbrook. If you enjoyed this episode, you would most certainly enjoy the documentary Holbrook Twain, an American Odyssey, released last month. Find it on iTunes. Music was provided by Steve Webb, caretaker at Quarry Farm, Larry Howe, president of the Mark Twain Circle and his Compass Rose Sextet, and Red Holt and the Heptet. Additional thanks to Nathaniel Ball, our archivist, Jenny Monroe of the Park Church, Joe Festa, special collections librarian at the Fenimore Museum, and scholars Mark Davidziak, Cindy Lovell, Laura Scandera Trombley, and Joyce Tice. Thank you for listening to the C-19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C-19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.